We are picking it back up, you guys, right where we left off last week. So that's Revelation chapter 7. And this is the interlude that the Apostle John is given to, to give him hope and the churches that he's writing to hope about the information um, that they were just received. That was the information that was in the sealed scroll that only the Lamb was worthy to open. After it was opened, that information was, was heavy. And so here is now this interlude. The scroll contained information on what God's people would endure as they awaited the second coming of Jesus, the parousia. And those events were generalized in the first four seals. God would be delivering his people through the actions brought by the four horsemen. Then in the fifth seal, there was an expressed desire from the saints in heaven who endured those trials that God would vindicate his name, that he would act based upon the holiness of his name on behalf of those saints who suffered through those trials brought about by the four horsemen. And the sixth seal is God's answer to the saints. And he speaks of what will happen on the day of the Lord, the second coming where Christ and the the wrath of the lamb will be shown. But before the seventh seal is opened, there is this interlude that we have here. And the focus is on the church to be an encouragement in light of what the first six seals revealed. And the first half was on the church existing in the world and explained how the church existing in the world was able to endure the trials that come in this age and how they could even stand before the Lord at his second coming. And the reason for that is because they've been sealed by God. We talked about that last week. All the elect, in other words, all of those people who trust and believe in Christ Jesus for salvation have received the Lord's seal and are preserved through God's judgment upon the world and his enemies. And then the second half of chapter 7, which is our primary text for tonight, the scene changes once more. And now it's toward the saints who are in heaven rather than those saints who are on the earth. So we'll read and then we'll pray. Okay, we're going to begin at verse 9 in Revelation chapter 7. The word of the Lord. Says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. For you are glorious and wonderful in every way. You are worthy of worship. And to even know that these elders and these four living creatures and what they represent and all those innumerable amounts of saints are 
glorifying you in heaven right now, we know that we are privileged to even be able to do so here on earth now. So we ask that you would make our worship to be true and right, that you would cause us to worship in spirit and truth. And as we look at your word and, and deal with the things that are in this text, we pray for understanding and for clarity, Lord. We know how many different views there are in this book. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful to what it is that you desire us to know so that we may exalt you and glorify you and have a greater rest in Christ and for what he's done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so once again, there's a change in the vision that John is getting. And we know that's the case because of the clue at the beginning of verse 9, where it says, after this. That's a, it's a clue that we've seen before. We'll see it again. It's signaling, signaling to us that the vision is advancing to something new. And so now, no longer is this vision teaching us something theological about the church on the earth. The focus is now on the church in glory or in heaven and before the second coming of Christ. And we know this is the case because as verse 9 says, John sees all these people around the throne and they're clothed in, in white robes. But really what that means is they're clothed in victory and redemption. But before we consider this scene in heaven, I want to do something that we didn't get to cover last week in enough detail. And that's the sealing of the saints. After all, the reason that we read that there is such a great multitude around the throne is directly related to the sealing that takes place to while the saints are on earth. It has to do with the gospel and righteousness of the righteousness of Christ being applied to us as it is the means that permits us to stand before the Lord and enjoy the Lord rather than flee and hide from the Lord if we could even. So they're sealed. And so first notice in verse 3, the end of verse 3, the location of the seal. We read that these people are sealed on their foreheads. And this is a consistent pattern that we see in the book. Same thing is said in Revelation 9.4. There we see that having the mark restrains them from harm, that these angelic beings are told to go and, and to harm the grass and the, and the fields, but not to harm those that have the seal. And then in Revelation 14.1, the same mark is associated with 144,000, again, listed on the forehead. So the same group that was listed here in chapter 7, which again was symbolic for the whole church. And then... In the scene that is being described at the end of the book, the new heavens and the new heavens and the new earth, after Christ comes again, we see this mark once more, and we're given an illusion as to what it is in a more clear way. This is Revelation 22.4. You could flip over there and look at it if you like. It's In my Bible, it's the last page before it gets to like the resources and maps and that type of thing. 22.4 says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The name of the Lord is said to be on their foreheads. It's a testimony to show us that this ceiling, which so unites us to the Lord, is as if it is his, his name is upon us. And by the way, of course, this is a symbolic thing. It's not like there's an actual mark or a physical, physically seen mark on the foreheads of saved people. The name of the Lord isn't actually Yahweh is not written on our heads in a way that any of us could see, obviously. I'm, a, I'm assuming, though, that some of the mystical Roman Catholic stuff that's associated with the forehead comes from this notion. But anyways, um, the same thing would be true for the mark of the beast as well, which we'll read about in coming months. And that mark is said to be on the forehead or the hand. And it's, a, it's a counterfeit of the true mark, and it's meant to mock the work of the Lord. Uh, but that's what's 
being said there again, it's, it's not a literal mark with the mark of the beast. It's a symbolic or a spiritual thing that is being explained. And it's actually significant, though, that this mark is on the forehead that we're reading, whether it's the mark of the beast or the mark of the Lord here, the seal of the Lord. It's trying to, it's, it's tying this into something that God has done in the past. There is a way in which God was communicating his ownership and ceremonial cleanness, which pointed to the righteousness of Christ by engaging the forehead uh, with saints in the past. So most notably, perhaps or it would be a positive case for this, and this is Exodus 28, 36 through 38. So all the way back to the Old Testament, Exodus 28. Here they, they are given, Israel is being given instruction on how to worship the Lord. And the, the vestments of the priests are mentioned. And so this is verse 36. And he's talking here um, to Aaron, about Aaron. And he says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of the signet, holy to the Lord. And it shall fasten it to the turban, to, and it shall fasten on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly, regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. You see the imagery there. Aaron in the old covenant priestly vestments, as the high priest had on a had a hat on. And on the forehead of that hat was an engravement that said, Holy to the Lord. The Lord's name was on, his, was on his forehead. And it signified, and because of this, the people we read were accepted before the Lord. It signified God's holiness, his possession, his ownership over Aaron and the role that he was to play. And people were accepted before the Lord when they confronted Aaron because of it. And so this old covenant type was pointing forward to the reality of the new covenant, of the covenant of grace. And so that the Lord, if we're able to stand before him, facing him, we are accepted before him because of this seal that we have. It's really no different than saying that we're clothed in Christ, that it's Christ's righteousness as applied to us by the person of the Holy Spirit. It's a seal that makes us to be able to stand before the Lord. This welcomes us into his glorious presence, like we read about in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22. Those who are saved by Christ are so loved by him that his name is on us and we are a new creation. And more on that seal in just a moment. And so just righteousness and being set apart to the Lord is denoted with a forehead mark. But the same is actually true with being set apart to rebellion and to wrath. So same thing again with the, the mark of the beast, right? There's, there's no neutrality here. One is either the Lord's or he or she is not. And so in the Old Testament, there is a specific uncleanliness, a ceremonial uncleanliness and judgment associated with the forehead as well. Multiple times in Leviticus 13 and in 2 Chronicles 26, we read of leprosy breaking out and specifically on the forehead. And of course, it could be elsewhere on the body, 
but the forehead is singled out as a way of abundantly expressing the ceremonial uncleanness and the need for atonement. Right? When, even when you think back to Aaron and his vestments, his priestly vestments, and the turban he wore with the holy is the Lord plate on his head, he wore it so that when the people came to make atonement, they would be accepted. He had it there in that, for that purpose. Well, then again, in Revelation 13 and 14, we'll see the mark of the beast being associated with the forehead or also the hand. It's counterfeit. It's not the mark and protection of the Lord. Nevertheless, it's on the same place, but also maybe on the hand. We'll get into that when we get to those texts. And then, interestingly, in Revelation 17, where we read about this individual that's called the great whore or the great prostitute, uh, this one who is an enemy of the church and Christ, we read that she has on her forehead Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes, and the earth's abominations. And we'll define those things when we get there. Hopefully everyone here will, especially by then, know what a prostitute is. Ask us later if you don't, and we'll deal with that. Yeah. Um, we'll talk to your parents about it. So the point is, is that God has been making this case of setting people apart through a mark on the forehead, and now we come to the end of special revelation that he has given to the church to know the gospel and the plan of redemption. And he is identifying his special and loved people by saying that they are sealed on their foreheads with a true seal that has his name on it. It speaks of our benefits in the gospel. Uh, William Hendrickson says that this sealing is the most precious thing under heaven. And as we pointed out last week, the seal is itself in some way the Holy Spirit. Even in verse 3 of chapter 7, it says, Until we have sealed, we, Jesus, and who else but the Holy Spirit, who is the seal. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1.21-22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as the guarantee. So if you have the spirit, you have the seal. If you don't have the spirit, you don't have the seal. They're, they're together. They're one and the same. So the sealing is applied also by the Holy Spirit. And as in another way, it's the seal itself. And many commentators on this book have noticed that sealing provides three and sometimes four distinct benefits. Uh, so we'll go through those briefly. First, the sealing of God here protects. There is an aspect of security to it. And remember from last time, I tried to drive this home because chapter 6 spoke often about the suffering that Christians will experience. Even in some cases, suffering all the way to death on account of the word. But the protection here isn't violated because of that. The protection that this is talking about, the seal provides is a spiritual protection. Satan and his demonic earthly angels could impose physical harm on us. It's true. Uh, sadly, people are killed frequently for their love of Jesus and belief in him. And that is an antichrist spirit in the work of those who kill believers. That's, that spirit, that desire is certainly demonic. But the promise here is for spiritual protection. Your faith and your place in the Lord will not be in question ever if you have the seal. As Christians living in this present evil age... We are subject to the same pressures, influence, and forces as unbelievers, Joel Beakey notes. We're, we're not immune to sorrow, to worry, to anxiety. We struggle to follow through with even what Scripture is clear on. 
we're confronted with death just as much, maybe even more, than those in the world who don't love Christ. And the difficult trials of the first six seals come upon believers just like they come upon those who don't believe. With variance, though, right? It's not all the same. It's not just a blanket sameness across all of creation. In many ways, we aren't much different than people in Jesus' day, really. People then and people today have weird thoughts about, or not, maybe not weird, but misplaced thoughts about what it means to have a good life and have what you want and need. If you remember when Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler, people were shocked because he said it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it would be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that shocked the people who were listening because they assumed that people were rich because they had God's favor. And many in our day make the same mistake as well. They see the rich and the famous and movie stars and athletes especially, and then they see their prosperity and they think that they are living the life and that all is well for them. Uh, the prosperity gospel is really born out of this idea too, that like you just have to have, that if you have wealth and money and faith, then it's obviously a sign that you're being blessed by God. But that's not necessarily the case. They could be far from God because what the world prizes isn't the same thing as what God prizes. And the saved and the lost are a lot alike in the, in the way that they go through things in this world. They go through similar outward circumstances. But the person who is sealed, no matter what sort of material blessing and favor they have or don't have, has a great assurance and security. How is it that we are able to be true to God to the very end? If we, if we truly look at our hearts and recognize our fears, we know how weak we actually are. Especially, you know, today, it seems like so many Christians are shipwrecking their faith. But why will a Christian not do that? Why will a true Christian not do that? Even in the face of something as serious as martyrdom. The reason is because the Lord has sealed you. He has spiritually protected you. God assures the person who trusts in Christ I have sealed you and I made you secure and nothing can separate you from the love with which I have loved you. Romans 8, 39. Christ is building his church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Secondly, so, it, so the first thing the sealing does is it protects us, it gives us a true security in the Lord. Secondly, it has an identifying mark to it. Seal is a mark of ownership. Uh, and verse 22 in in 2 Corinthians again says, and he who has also put a seal on us has given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's about identity. Think of it. The 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads. They don't have like, now not seeing this physically, right? But spiritually speaking, it's not some secret mark that's hard to see or it's hidden behind some clothes. It's right on their forehead. God marks his people to publicly proclaim that they are his. It's in the midst of trials and disaster, the disasters of life, when those winds of those four corners are blowing, like we read about earlier in chapter 7. God's people stand out because God's protecting his people, and he owns them as they go through these trials. He puts his mark on them so everyone knows who they are and, and who we are in being Christ. Whenever um, or when you're on your deathbed, and those people who, and we're all going to die in here, right? We're young, most of us are young in here, so we're not, we don't often think of death. And that's normal, I suppose. But we all need to understand that we will all die. There's a, a man is appointed to death, 
and then the, the day of judgment. That is, the true, that is true for everyone, no matter how young and full of life we feel, and it could come at any moment. But when we're on our deathbed, if we have been sealed by God, and the people, and therefore living for God, the people who mocked you for believing and then refusing to bow the knee to the Lord can see you in that state and think, well, yes, you know, there is something real about this that they believed. I think of Sandy, for example. And there have been others like Sandy at our church who, despite the pain that they had, they persisted to follow Christ and seek his glory. Uh, Mike, Provencha, Sandra, uh, Louis, Louise, Verna, the all people who, despite battling cancer, and that ended up being the door to heaven for them, they did so with grace and they sought the Lord through it all. And if you're truly sealed, you can face anything in life. You can cast off doubts and fears about your salvation, for Christ has sealed you as his own. You can say, as the bride says in Song of Solomon to her husband in verse 16, chapter 2, which, by the way, Song of Solomon is literature that is meant for us to understand the relationship between Christ and the church based off of a relationship between a man and a woman, a true relationship there, but also meant to tell us more about Christ and the church. But in 2.16, the woman says, which would be the church, in, in the analogy, my beloved is mine and I am his. And so if you're sealed in Christ, you know that in the midst of trials and persecutions that God is your God. You belong to him. And that gives you strength to endure whatever comes before you. Don't misunderstand this. That, you know, the Christian life is not easy. We've been going over this. But being united to Christ means that there is a certain level of suffering or persecution that will come your way. The Lord, or the mark that the Lord puts on you that seals you is like a target for the enemy as well. But the Lord God supplies grace that you can patiently endure for the sake of his glorious name. And then thirdly, the seal lends itself to authenticity. It's, an, it's another benefit of the sealing. It certifies the genuineness of the sealer. And can God fail? He can't, right? God cannot fail. The point here is that whatever happens in life, in this life, the seal can't be undone. And you are truly and genuinely, because it is God who put this seal on you and who therefore God is. By placing this seal on you, God is saying this child is genuinely mine, that we have been adopted into his family. You know, when a, when a baby has, when a couple has a baby, it's clear that the child is genuinely theirs. They made the child. But in adoption, it's not like that. You know, when we adopted Sophie, for example, uh, we had to do a few things first. We had to do all these things first. We had to take classes. There was interviews. We had to wait a certain amount of time. You have to stand before a judiciary party. And, that, and, that, and in front of that judiciary party, you had to covenant or promise to care and love. And then you obtain the certificate of adoption that authenticates it in the eyes of the law that this person is now part of your family, that this adoption is, is now genuine. That certificate of adoption is like the seal of genuineness that this person is now a part of your family. And the seal works like that. When God says, when he seals a person, he is saying, this child is genuinely mine. He or she has been adopted into my family and my act of adoption is sealed by my spirit. And we should be clear, too, the whole Godhead is doing the sealing here. We belong to Yahweh in the fullest sense. The Father has sealed the believer, and we enjoy the Father's presence throughout all of life. The Son has sealed the believer, and he has 
bought and redeemed us by his blood. And the spirit as well is, is, is active. And he seals us and certifies that we are the sons of God. And the spirit is even the seal or is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so the sealing is necessary for us to understand the people who are being described now in the second half of this of chapter 7. This, the people who are described in the second half are the people who were sealed while on the earth. And then that seal enables them to, again, stand before the Lord on that great day, but then also to be before the Lord's throne in heaven in glory. And so let's look at this second half here, this picture, biblical picture of heaven. Uh, this is where the sealed will be until the return of Christ. And then we get our new bodies so that we might return to the earth with the Lord. But first off, we see here that there's a great multitude that no one could number. So contrasted with the 144,000, but it's still the same group. These are sealed people here in heaven, which makes them able to come before the Lord in, in joy and in gladness. The 144,000 was used to symbolize a large number and totality in light of God's covenants with man. But here in heaven, the focus of that same people group is now on the largeness or on the, the grandness of that number. And at the end of human history, before the coming of the Lord, the saved in Christ by the effort of Christ in the gospel will be a massive number, a number that is so great that John says no one could number. No man, that is, because certainly God knows that number. And this is different than thinking, you know, the, the reality that there is on the wide path that leads to hell, many people, and on the narrow path is few. That's still true. But what we're talking about here in heaven is the accumulation of all the saved people from the start of time who have been sealed by the Lord. And that number adds up to who knows how many, a number too big that John couldn't number, but again, the Lord knows that number. In Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing about some false teachers who were leading people astray, and he says this in Second Timothy 2.19. says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Uh, stop sinning, in other words. The Lord knows every single saint by name. A try to stop sinning, desire to stop sinning, because of course we still sin and there's repentance for that and forgiveness. But the point here in Second Timothy is that the Lord knows who are his. He knows them. He's the one who has sealed them. He knows the very number of hairs upon our heads even, we read in Matthew's gospel. And this vision, the number is, is innumerable for John, and it would be for us too, but it's not for the Lord. God knows them all by name even. And look at what verse 9 says also, that this great multitude is from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And they're all before the throne, and they're worshiping in union, even crying out with a loud voice together. Christianity isn't just for you know, the United States. It's not just for westernized nations. It's for everyone. There's no superior or better culture than a culture dominated by Christianity. And in the new heavens and the new earth, where everyone is worshiping in light of God's laws, it will be you know, something like we, we've never yet experienced, but we do anticipate it. And one day, again, you know, when Christ does return, uh, that sort of a society will dominate the whole of the earth. It will be all of the earth. And this biblical view of heaven shows that heaven will be rich and full of color. I mean, people with different nationalities and ethnic differences, all clothed in white, all clothed in Christ and washed by the blood of the Lamb. Clint brought this, brought this up last week, or maybe it was 
two weeks ago. I'm not sure. But know what Matthew 24, 14 says? It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So God has his elect. He has chosen those whom were... He has, he has those whom were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world spread out over across the whole planet. And the things that divide us now, culturally and societally, they won't divide us in heaven, and certainly not when Christ comes again. And so let's note this group of people here in verse 9 more closely. They are they're redeemed people. They're clothed in these white robes. We've talked about that before. They're before the throne of the Creator and the Redeemer clothed in white, symbolizing that they've conquered through Christ and have been cleansed by his righteousness. But we do see something new here that we haven't seen thus far in John's apocalypse. They have palm branches that they're, wa- that they're waving. And this serves us, or they're holding these palm branches. And this serves to remind us of two related things. There's an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament, which we read about in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is actually interesting. We don't have time to read it all tonight. But if you go back and look at it, it, it lists all the different feasts that Israel was to, to keep. And so the last and the section most um, I talked about the most is on the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And that ceremony is one in which they had to take up they're, in that ceremony, they're told to take up palm branches and rejoice. And they were, it reminded Israel that for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And the feast of the celebration was about deliverance from Egypt and entrance into Canaan, which was the promised land. And then likewise, when Christ Jesus was honored as a king in what we call the triumphal entry, uh, which you know, he, when he enters Jerusalem, we read about it in Matthew 21, palm branches were laid at his feet, uh, and it was symbolic. It was to proclaim that this is the king who is leading them into the true promised land. They, they understood that Jesus, in, in some sense, at least they believed and thought that Jesus was this promised Messiah, but then since he didn't fulfill it in the way that they thought he would, and ushering it all at once, they end up you know, rejecting him and rebelling against him. But in that moment, during the triumphal entry, the, it seems as if the whole city of Jerusalem is worshiping him, and they're putting down these palm branches, and it's reminding Israel and those who are paying attention that this is like the deliverance that Egypt that Israel had from Egypt and they're now being and this is the man who's going to welcome them into the the true promised land not Canaan but what Canaan symbolized the saints in glory are said to have palm branches here and so we're made to think of the redemption brought by God throughout history and that has landed that has landed people here at the end of the age God's gospel plan is all encompassing and is destined to succeed even it's destined to succeed. And look at the recipients of salvation here. And more, we'll get to that again in a second here. But look at the recipients of salvation here. Look at verse 10. It said, look at what they say. They say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is a work of the Lord. Salvation is God's work. There's going to be no one in heaven who thinks that God let them in because they were basically a good person. You, we, that happens, right? If you talk to people on the streets, hey, do you, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. And you're like, that's great. Uh, the, the important question to ask someone is, well, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And out there, that's when it seems most people you talk to, or many, I should say at least, so that's where they kind of fall apart. It's, some will say, well, maybe, I hope. Which, again, is, is, I think they're trying to be humble, but that's not really being humble if they're trusting in Christ because it says that Christ's work on their behalf was maybe not enough. 
Or they'll say, they'll say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And you'll say, why? And they'll say, well, because I try, to, I try to be good. I try to keep God's commandments. Which is good that they try to do that. But nobody's, that's not the reason why anybody's in heaven. That's not what these saints around the throne say. They say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No one, no one who is in heaven thinks that they are there because, of, because they tried to do what was right. No one thinks that they were there because they were basically a good person. The message of salvation by what you accomplish is not a message to be found anywhere near the throne of God. There it's clear. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He's done what is required and he's sat down, leaving nothing else to be done. Salvation is a gift that we receive. And if you recognize that now, if, you, if you're sitting here tonight and you recognize now that salvation is not something that you have to do or earn, but it's something that you receive as a gift, that's the saving grace of the Lord in your life. And then verse 11 ramps up this glorious worship. And so you have the elders, which were first mentioned in chapter 5, or it was chapter 4. And then you have the four living creatures as well, those angelic beings that we have seen a few times now. And they all worship God as well. And they, they, they make themselves low before God. We read that they fall down on their faces, actually, showing their humility before God, that, that God's glory would be the only thing that's standing out. And they, they fall on their faces and know what they say. They say, Amen. Blessing, one. And glory, two. And wisdom, three. And thanksgiving, four. And honor, five. And power, six. And might, seven. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so much could be said about all of those. But note, it's a sevenfold declaration of praise. The reality is, of course, there's many more things we could say that are praiseworthy of God than just those seven things. But he's doing that familiar thing once again with the number seven, showing completeness and fullness of worship. There, there, the worship of Yahweh here in glory is complete. It's full. It's not missing anything. There's no division between people. You know how it is when you come to church. Maybe not everyone is actually worshiping the Lord. Even there could be true believers who are here and they're distracted or whatever. But no, in glory, there's this fullness, this completeness of worship. Everyone who is there is worshiping the Lord and what they're doing. There's no sin. And then in verse 13, one of the elders approaches John and he's basically checking on him to see that he is understanding what it is that this vision is communicating. <laughs> it's kind of funny, really, actually. He questions him and he says, who are the people in the white robes and where are they from? Uh, the people we talked about in verse nine just a few moments ago. And then John responds, sir, you know, you're aware it's a, it's a similar thing that Ezekiel said in his vision in the, in the dry bones. When, when he's asked, can the Lord revive these bones? And Ezekiel said, sir, you know if you can do it. But the answer that's given here is interesting. The elder says that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. He says they have had their, their robes washed and they've been made white in the blood of the lamb. Now, in this series, I have not spent a lot of time offering a polemic against dispensational premillennialism because I think most of you guys don't even know what that is. Most of you guys are young enough to have not been exposed to the Left Behind books and, and that whole, really that system is, is slowed down in popularity over the last decade, maybe even a little bit longer than that. 
But for many people who alter the system, and I see it probably still is the dominant position. Your parents have all probably heard of left behind, for example. Um, so obviously you adults that are here know what it is as well. But for many who hold to that system, which again, I think there's still a lot, um, but we haven't been exposing it to you here because why, uh, when we could just not even do that. But what they would say when they see the Great Tribulation here is that it's a specific time associated with intense persecution right before Christ comes. And they would say it's either seven years long or it's three and a half years long, depending on who you talk to. But that's not what we actually read here in the text. Remember, the elder is saying that these are the people in verse 9. And they were waving these palm branches. And those palm branches were symbolic of those who went through the wilderness and arrived in the promised land. They were, they, people in Leviticus 23, in the Feast of Booths, we read, would take up these palm branches as part of their celebration and worship of Yahweh for Yahweh's deliverance from Egypt into Canaan which is the promised land. They, they passed through the Red Sea and they came to the Jordan River, which God also parted, and then he let them into the promised land. And so what this great tribulation here is, is the entire journey of God's people between, if we're going to use the typological language, between the Red Sea and the Jordan River, which in other words, represents our, the church in this present evil age, it represents our wilderness wandering. It is the Christian's life from start to, from the, from the moment that God intervenes and saves and rescues us from the cruel taskmaster of sin and Satan and sets you on the path of life until your day of earthly life ends and you cross the Jordan into glory. It, it is then this great tribulation. It is, it is the life that every Christian is living right now and has been living since the first coming of Christ. The Great Tribulation is synonymous with the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And every Christian comes out of it. it is, it's the same thing that right now, we are, we are, it is as if we are wandering through the wilderness. And when we get to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, that's God's work. And that's why these saints here in glory are holding these palm branches. Because it's reminding us that that, that, that wilderness wandering for Israel is typological of the trials and the tribulations we endure now as a church as we await to go into the promised land, which Christ will usher us into. And look where they arrive, verse 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall neither hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from before their eyes. So much here. So many wonderful things here. Verse 16, it's a, it's a reversal of those judgments that come in this present evil age of the four horsemen. No longer will there be suffering in that way. The, the things that are mentioned in verse 16, are, they're very similar to the, 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 the tribulations brought about by the four horsemen. And then the lamb who took upon himself a human nature lived in the wilderness of the world and he suffered for us. And, and when faith becomes sight in glory, he'll supply all of our wants and our needs. Joel Bickey says that this is what this is all about, is living in the presence of the Lord. God's presence will overshadow us. Look at the location that we have. We're living for worship here in, in 
verse 15, where he's going to shelter us with his presence. It will be like living in the Garden of Eden, but much, much, much better. God's presence will be everywhere and will be more alive than we have ever been. You've heard people say probably before, like, I'm, I've never been better. Well, it'll be true. You can say that with 100% certainty and truth when you're there in glory. You've never been better. In a sense, this is mysterious to us, of course, but those who die in the Lord, and we would say, you know, from a human standpoint, are dead now. If they are with the Lord in glory, they are actually more alive than we are today. And one day, the great hope of the promise is that we who are sealed as well will be with them there as also. There the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The, the shepherd of Micah 5, Jesus will be caring for his sheep there just like he does now. For us now, it is Jesus who is shepherding us as well. He leads us through this valley of death, another you know, wilderness type of mention there. He, his rod and his staff, they comfort us here and now. He prepares a table before us, before, for us before our enemies. And he, he leads us in paths of righteousness and to still waters and to lie down in green pastures, Psalm 23 says. And that's what he does in glory too. He guides them to springs of living water, verse 17, to, to the river from the throne that he sits on, Revelation 22, to himself, in other words. And the closeness and the shelter that he provides for us brings joys that right now are only experienced on the surface level, wiping every tear of sadness from their eyes. The comfort and the joy and the peace described is everything, and really more than whatever people desire now that they think is good even. No more hunger, no more thirst, the sun and the scorching heat, which considering this upcoming weekend, it's supposed to be like 109, I think. The, there's no longer a thing. Whatever people are pursuing today in, a, in place of God is foolishness. What people really want, if they would not have their spiritual eyes blinded, if they were open to see the reality, what they would really want is what God has in store for those who trust and love him. For those who have come out of the great tribulation and have had their robes washed and made white with the blood of the Lamb. People aren't in glory because they went through the great tribulation. Everyone is doing that. That's the point even. They aren't there because God is giving people something good since they suffered so much here and now. That's not it. Actually, the suffering to come for those who don't bow the knee to the Lord is even worse than any suffering that might happen here and now but they're there because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They're not washed in their own sufferings and their own trials, but in the Lamb's. It's the atonement made by Christ, His sinless life, and then His his life being offered there on the cross in place of yours, receiving the punishment of sin, His making atonement for you in that way, His blood being shed for you, that gets you there. The great shepherd of the sheep, he passed through great tribulation so that when you pass through great tribulation, you'll get to be where he is. By the blood of the eternal covenant, he gets us there. He's the focus of it all, friends. And this interlude is placed here in Revelation 7 so that we remember to look to him and to him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for all that you do for us and all that 
you have done for us in history past, even making certain and sure then what the future will hold. We know that the saints in glory hold these palm branches, reminding us of the victory that you have purchased and brought and and bought. And so we pray, Lord, that you would have our hope to be fully on you, Lord, that we would be like those saints who are around your throne that says salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. We know that we didn't do anything to earn salvation, Lord. Impress upon us a great desire to be completely at rest in Christ and help us, Lord, to to know you more and to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, any uh, questions? Comments you think I try to clear up? No, no. Okay. Did the outline help at all? Okay.